Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have J. Aaron Simmons. He's a professor of philosophy, a widely published author, a popular speaker, and also a trout fisherman and mountain biker. Specializing in philosophy of religion and political philosophy, Aaron's the former president of the Soren Kierkegaard uh, Society, and he's an active public philosopher and hosts the YouTube channel, Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. And he's a frequent writer on Substack, uh, Philosophy in the Wild. Please connect with him at jaronsimmons.com. And his newest book, available now, is called Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. Welcome, Aaron. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, my gosh. I appreciate you guys inviting me and can't wait to uh, think about things that matter with you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And so it's a quote from Aaron's book, Aaron wrote, Far too often, we think that we need faith in order to overcome risk, but such a view is actu actually short circuits itself. The real threat to faithful living is the idea that one can have certainty about things of existential importance. Faith goes hand in hand with risk, but in a way that is akin to humility being the ground of confidence. As Socrates shows, true confidence is not thinking that you are the greatest, but instead realizing that you are limited and in need of correction and encouragement from others. Mm -hmm. But when such humility is deployed as a virtue, it allows confidence to emerge in the light of self-honesty. Living faithfully does not remove our doubts and, and position us as certain, as certain about ourselves, the world, and what matters. Instead, faithful living facilitates being able to act on purpose and with confidence while abandoning the idol of certainty. As a philosopher, I think clear definitions are important. Without them, we can often find ourselves missing each other's points as well as missing out on going deeper in our thinking. So here's my definition of faith, risk with direction. All right. So, I mean, as I'm sure you were expecting, so let's go into what faith is, risk with direction. I mean, often, you know, when we think of uh, faith, we think of religiosity, we think of irrationality, right? So we think of believing without reason. But for you, it's a little bit different. And obviously for Kierkegaard too. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So tell us, first of all, what what the, our understanding of faith, what, it, what actually is it, right? And then we can get into who Kierkegaard was, why he was important, et cetera. No, it sounds good. So yeah, it, one of the things that I wrestle with a lot when it comes to, you know, you write a lot of books and then you get a lot of feedback and you think, man, was that the right word? <laughs> and so in this book, the question that I have asked myself is, does faithfulness best get at what I was trying to get at? And I continue to think it does. I continue to think it's the best definition for it. And I'll explain why. But I admit the reason that I continue to have hesitation about the way I used that term is because of, as you said, the ordinary ways we typically deploy it, right? Usually someone has faith because either they are religious, and so faith is you're a person of faith, right? And so faith then just distinguishes you from secular folk, or you have faith because you don't have certainty, and so faith becomes a kind of epistemically lowered uh, target than what we really wish we had, which was knowledge. <laughs> and then knowledge gets equated to, I have no questions, no doubt about the views I hold, right? Mm -hmm. So when I use faith, I mean neither of those things, <laughs> which, huh. which is a kind of risky move itself, right? What I mean by faith, as you said, is just risk with direction. And so I'm tapping into an existential philosophical tradition. And in particular, I'll give two examples, and then we can turn to Kierkegaard. One is Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre suggests that we are either in good faith or bad faith. So he's getting rid of that first idea, 
right? Where faith is not some sort of knowledge claim that only some people have. And if you lack knowledge, you're a faith person. Sartre says, no, we all have faith because faith is the deployment that we partake in relative to the lives we're trying to lead. And so you can either do that faithfully for Sartre by being invested, purposive, reflective, and intentional about the contingency that defines the decisions you make, or you can be in bad faith, which means that you are in denial, right? You mm. think things are obvious when they're not. You think you have certainty when in fast risk continues. The other person that I would draw on here is actually Friedrich Nietzsche who of course famously says that God is dead. So you might claim, well, what a better atheistic model to turn to. He's clearly not a person of faith, but what he does in the madman parable when he declares the death of God is then says, who has wiped away the horizon, right? Are we now falling upwards or downwards or sideways or long ways? And what he does is basically says, when we abandon this idolatry of absolute certainty about what is true, good, and beautiful in the world, we have to fall back on the idea that we are still moving. So how will we name that direction? So if you combine those two, you get with Sartre radical risk as concerns selfhood in life and meaning. Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche, you get directionality because we've got to name the decisions we make, the beliefs we hold, and the hopes we have. We have to name that as actually something towards which we are moving. And so when I talk about faith as risk with direction, I mean it in that existential sense. So when I'm saying faithfulness is a way of life that I'm trying to advocate and defend, I'm doing this as opposed to what I name as the success orientation of human culture, which is where we say, hey, we're not actually really concerned with whether you're religious or not. We're concerned with are you reinforcing the status quo by which everybody gets to live and shut down their reflective capacities? <laughs> and we just name that success. Do you have a fancy car? Nobody questions you, right? Have you got the money? Like two change? Is money your motivation? Then Baby, you're good. There's nothing right. that we have to justify or explain. And what I'm trying to do is say, but notice how that diminishes and erases the actual substance of human meaning, human potential in light of the vulnerability of our exist existential situation and the relationality by which meaning is always made and shared. So why I turn to Kierkegaard is because Kierkegaard, I think, is the one philosopher in this existential tradition who most explicitly is talking about faith. But the way he does this is at two levels. He does it explicitly as a Christian mm -hmm. and as an existential thinker. And so I identify as both of those things. I'm an existential philosopher, but I also happen personally to be confessionally committed to Christianity. And so he allowed me to be able to say, hey, I mean Sartre, Nietzsche, atheistic existential faith, but this can also play out. A direction can be determinate religious existence. And so in the book, I only have one chapter that's explicitly talking about my conception of God. The mm -hmm. rest of the chapters are about that existential task 
that I hope resonates with everybody, so long as they're willing to take up the idea that making more money doesn't make you more important. Hmm. Wait, and I do have a question then. So, because you mentioned contingency, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So the way we think about the world, the best way I can put this is a phrase that colleges like a lot, which is come to our school. We're going to give you real world experience. Right. Well, notice that narrative of there's this real world out there for which we are preparing you. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is also a narrative, by the way, that businesses in general benefit from, because what real world are we preparing students for? The world defined by business logics determining value and importance. Right. And so what I mean by contingency is simply, look, there is no real world. There's the world you've let become real, mm -hmm. that we inherit and inhabit a history of contingent could be otherwise human decisions about what we're okay with. Richard Rorty, the American pragmatic philosopher, once said that truth is just whatever your friends let you get away with saying. Mm -hmm. I think he's wrong about truth, but I think he's right about the way truth functions mm -hmm. to make obvious the way we navigate the world. And so here, what I recommend to folks is go check out David Foster Wallace's little tiny book. It was a commencement address just called This is Water. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is he says, there's these two fish swimming along. This old fish comes up and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they look at each other and like, what the hell's water? Mm -hmm. And he uses that little story to say our whole existence is actually inherited under this mode of obviousness. You just go about life to, you know, find a spouse, get a fancy car, get the job, have 2.3 kids, retire at 64 with a million and a half in the bank, life unlocked, mm -hmm. right? And the problem is, notice, like most of us in our 40s, one of two things is true. You either done all the stuff you set out to do and realize it didn't provide the fulfillment, purpose, and joy that you were seeking, Right. Or you didn't accomplish some of those things and you now are wrecked by the sense of that failure. What I'm calling for is existential faithfulness, where we realize the real goals in life are always things that are constantly in play. And the example I'll give here is think about like um, the difference between I want to get a PhD, which, you know, that's an important thing. If you want to be a professor, so I got a PhD, check the box. Sure. But compare that to, I want to be a good father. So I have a 14-year-old son named Atticus. Yesterday was like a fathering win. It was awesome, which anybody who has teenagers knows is rare. And so he went to bed, dad, I love you. This day was amazing. I, walking out of the room, realized like George Costanza, when he leaves on a high note, hmm. I have achieved being a good father. So I left my family last night. That doesn't make any sense, right? right? Notice right. the natural conclusion. So I'm done with that and moving on actively misses the real important stuff about human existence. So when I talk about contingency, I'm trying to always remind folks 
the way you think things are, the way you think what matters is just what matters, the way that you appeal to the real world to justify your own misery and then mm -hmm. cultivate it in your kids so that maybe they'll be 40 just like you and then need to hide it and not point it out to you. <laughs> like that whole bizarre cycle could be different. And that's what I'm trying to invite people to think through by turning to existential philosophy and doing a bunch of mountain biking. <laughs> uh, when was the turning point for you personally when you had that realization? Because I know in your book, you do talk about there were times you were just working days on end thinking, oh, OK, I'm going to go. I'll eventually I'll uh, go fishing. Right. Uh, yeah. But you, then you never actually end up go doing that and like living your life, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird. So often, and I think a lot of philosophers probably can identify with this. Yeah. We know stuff before we do stuff. Mm. <laughs> and so I had been teaching some version of this existential awareness. Oh, shoot. For probably 15 years or so. Um, I had even given a TEDx talk called The Failure of Success, where I basically laid out these categories of success and faithfulness and why faithfulness is more existentially compelling. And it doesn't mean that we then like refuse to go to work and all we do is, you know, resign ourselves to fishing. Mm -hmm. My point was <laughs> not like work hard, love excellence, just recognize that you're choosing what you do in the world. And so ask this fundamental question, what is worthy of your finitude? Where mm -hmm. finitude's just the idea, you're limited, you're gonna die, aging and death define us, they're part of the deal. So are you okay with how you're spending the limited time you've got, right? Mm -hmm. So I had done this TEDx talk, I had been doing this in my intro to philosophy classes, reading This Is Water for over a decade, and yet, <laughs> You know, it's the the Maya Angelou has this line somewhere where she says, the hardest thing about being a professor is that you eventually have to come to grips with whether or not you live what you teach. <laughs> and for me, I thought I was living this, but the way I was living it was trying to be everything to everybody be so completely invested in every student and every meeting and every deadline and every book. But the problem was I was actually not investing in my son. I wasn't seeing my wife very often. I wasn't getting to the mountains to fish. And so what it took for me was the interruption or the breaking of what I call the inertia of the everyday. Mm -hmm. And for all of us, like that was March 2020, right? So the every day that I had just found myself inhabiting without question, like effing broke because I couldn't go to the office. Right. I, I couldn't get to the places where I thought I needed to be. I couldn't go to the library to get the books to write the next article. And so it was like, well, shoot, where is a place I can be safe and be with my family who were also stuck at home? We went to the mountains and I've always been an avid outdoorsman. I just hadn't actually spent much time there because I was working so hard. Mm. And so now for what it's worth, I work every bit as hard. It's just now the investment in work is reflective and intentional. And so I try to bring it into conversation with the things I love doing rather than seeing work getting in the way of what I love to do. It's like, I freaking love philosophy. What if we wrote a philosophy book just about like why people mountain bike? What if there was a philosophy book about why trout fishing might actually be the key to meaningful life? 
What if like suddenly those questions started popping? So I wrote this entire book literally on top of mountains in North Carolina and would ride bikes during the morning, then go back to a cabin my friend owns. And so I would sit there and write in the afternoons and it wasn't screw work. It was, wait a minute, work was always supposed to be. And Marx points this out. Work is the name we give for doing on purpose things we think are meaningful. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the basis of what we call economy. Economy is just the exchange of the outcomes of those meaningful actions to allow us not to have to do everything for ourselves. That all sounds great to me. The problem is somehow we got in a space race of who has the most toys wins. And if you don't have the big fancy you know, house and you don't have health insurance and you don't have a new iPhone every two years, not only are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but now we start culturally narrating that person as less significant, a problem, a pariah. And it was like, wow. But it turns out philosophers have always been called those things, mm -hmm. right? So what if philosophers started stepping back into this public space and saying, we kind of are interested in not radically revolting against the status quo, but inviting people to realize the status quo is an option. There are other options. And so we saw this in 2020. People started quiet quitting. People, the great resignation, like all these things happened. But now notice four years later, what are we all doing? Everybody's back at work wishing they had more vacation time, right? It's like, man, yeah. we, we really could have made real differences, but it turns out bills start getting paid and we want to be like all the rest of the people and be back in the crowd and be cool like the cool kids and drive the fancy car and get the new phone. And that's fine. Well, it also I, might be the case that hiking is also worth doing. Absolutely. Do you mind if I, I just want to, so something that you said before really caught, uh, was very interesting for me. It's that before, prior to 2020, before reality was, uh, shook up, um, you said that you were sort of under the impression that you thought you were there for all these people, right? What do you think exactly was going on in your mind at the time when you were under that impression? Because I bet you there are people now, especially connecting to what you just said, you know, four years uh, later, people are kind of back at work and all of that. And, you know, it's business as usual. What do you think was that impression that was going on where you felt like you were present for everyone, but you weren't? Is it that you were thinking like, well, technically I'm engaging with all these different people. So therefore, since I'm engaging, I must be present to the moment. Oh, if I'm present to the moment, I must be living life correctly. Oh, life is hard while I'm living present to the moment. Oh, that must be just a part of the mechanic. And, and does that sort is that like something that distracts from sort of the realization you had that you're presenting in the book? Or what what do you think yeah. is happening there? No, it's a great question. So the the simplest way I can put it, and then I'll give you an example of how I discovered this. Um, I think I, like a lot of people, right, uh, confused being busy with being committed to excellence. Ah, okay. And that confusion is one notice that our success-driven model of culture, again, which I'm not opposed to you making a lot of money. I hope you get a billion listeners to the podcast, right? Success is not a problem because we accomplish stuff. Success right. is a problem Right. Well, success is a problem when we allow doing those things to be the anchor of our value. 
right? I matter if I can pull this off. I will be happy with myself once I make partner. Like we end up with, in the book, I call it a, if only, then I'll. (laughs) If only I can get through the semester, then I'll take a break. If only I can publish this book, then I'll have more time for my son. If only, but that if only, then I'll logic like, think about it. Seneca, the great Stoic, says at one point, we all want more life, live longer, more life. And he says, but stop and ask, have you lived enough to do what mattered? And mm-hmm. that awareness started happening as I spent time in the mountains by myself, right? Realizing, my goodness, it's when I'm by myself in the mountains, I feel more invested more excited to go into the classroom, to be communing with all of the others in my world. But when I was not taking time in the mountains, I was actually just what Kierkegaard would call lost in the crowd and the public, right? (laughs) They were determining my existence, but I wasn't present trying to contribute to them. I was receiving myself from that crowd mentality. You get to the mountains, jump a mountain bike down a few downhill trails, catch a few trout, spin nights under the stars. And it wasn't like, oh, I don't ever want to go back to the classroom. It was like, my goodness, I'm better for my students when I'm modeling for them, not just how to read Descartes, but why it matters to be philosophical about the life we will have ended up living. Mm -hmm. And so that Mm -hmm. what's worthy of my finitude question which finally sunk in, became the day one lecture of all my intro classes. The point of this class, what's worthy of your finitude? And the way I try to land that for my students and also readers and stuff is take seriously, and this is a Kierkegaardian idea, you are who you are becoming, right? We could cash this out with Aristotle who says basically our habits define what becomes normal for us. So virtue for him just is, have you habituated a certain kinds of practice? But this also can be Augustine, who says that the object of our desire, what we allow to name our behavior, Mm -hmm. becomes what names our identity. But this also can be Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Sartre, Beauvoir, right? All of these existential thinkers who simply say, man, like you could do otherwise. You cool with who you are? Like, are are you okay with this? If not, change it. And Mm -hmm. if you can't change it, this is the lesson we learned from Albert Camus. If you can't change it, you're Sisyphus pushing that rock. You're condemned to do this. But look what Sisyphus does. He's like, all right, what the gods condemned me to do, I will now choose to do well. Except screw the gods, yeah. right? He he refuses to let the gods dictate what condemns him. He chooses to do what he doesn't have a choice about doing to reject the condemnation. In fact, we were talking before the, the episode started um, about this amazing movie, The Hurricane, starring uh-huh. Denzel Washington. Right. Yeah. This is what that movie models, is this guy stuck in prison 16 plus years. He says... I refuse to let their time, their priorities, and their desires dictate my existence. So I would wake when they sleep, sleep when they woke, refuse the food that they gave. Like all of these moves, he couldn't get out of prison. But what he did in this kind of quasi-stoic-y existential way 
is refused to let prison name his identity. And that's what kind of happened for me. And I think for far too many of us, like we're locked in a kind of success modeled prison, but we absolutely don't want to name it as that. And for me, I had that happen, but I wanted to name it as excellence, hard work, you know, loving my family enough to teach seven extra classes so I can get the, like all the things I was doing, I never narrated as workaholism. I never narrated as a problem. I just saw it as, look, this is what you do when you're committed to what you do and doing it well. Now I realize, no, I, I should have fished more. <laughs> like that, that would have made me better at the things I thought I was loving doing. Well, so wait, so is it all right? So I want to actually uh, kind of give you sort of my take on it or tell you a bit of a story. And then I actually have a question for both of you. So uh, Ed, please remember, because I want you to answer too, because I'm actually curious what you think, Alan. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes when people ask me, so I'm objectively by, I guess, any metric in the US, I'm considered to be successful in terms of like what I do. I have my own career. Uh, like I have a lot of stuff going on, right? The podcast writing, et cetera, right? But so it's so funny because when people ask me, they're like, oh, how do you do this thing that seems to be so apparently hard? They actually don't get it. So, and I would argue it's only the real people, the people who really know me. So what they don't get is that for me, a lot of this stuff comes naturally. So, because I tend to be obsessive and the thing is my mind tends to actually shut off when I'm pursuing something, I just kind of do it. So like, let's say when I'm writing, I just write, I pump it out and then I move on. So when people ask me, they're like, oh, hey, don't you actually like struggle with a lot of anxiety with this stuff? Actually, the answer is not really. And so the answer is why, and here's where I want to ask you guys the question. Uh, so the answer is why for me is because for me, it's actually harder to do the other stuff. So when you talk about faith and faith as being something as, let's say, as risk with direction, the way I think of it as is that when it comes to success, for me at the very least, there's actually not that much risk involved. Meaning, even though, yes, I feel bad about it, let's say when I fail, I get rejected, whatever it is, I actually have the ability to just move on. Like, I'll fucking cry about it. And then literally the next day, I'll just go do something else. And so the reason why is because the thing that I'm actually afraid of is the thing, this is the real risk for me, right? Because this is where the direction should go, but it doesn't. So the real risk is actually what you're talking about is sort of being a good lover, being a good father, uh, being a friend, being intimate, being vulnerable. These are the things I can't really do. So the other stuff actually comes easily to me. So this is the question that I have for both of you. And I actually want to hear your answer first, because I don't want you to be influenced by Aaron. I'm just curious. So do you, do you ever, okay. do you find that it's the case that the stuff that you do, right, when it comes to success, when it comes to the things that make you happy, uh, podcasting, whatever, do you actually find that the stuff that seems like on the surface is really risky, that that's actually less risky than the other stuff? like something like being in love um honestly uh before we actually started podcasting it was actually very it's incredibly scary right like kind of putting yourself out there public speaking uh if if you get successful people will now know who you are and they might look up who you are and or maybe find out something about your past or even if that wasn't a concern just like in general just kind of uh seeing you may be vulnerable if you end up actually becoming vulnerable and what if you make a mistake while expressing yourself? They'll see that side of you and that kind of thing. So for me, it's actually more like in order. So I, this is something in your in your book, Aaron, actually, which is like when you get a call, right, uh, to do something. Uh, for me, what kind of made me align with maybe uh, with uh, doing this podcast or just in general, uh, sort of talking about some of the things that we talk about on the podcast, like whether it's being present to the moment. Uh, nuanced thinking, um, the different uh, sort of forms of philosophy that we discuss. It's uh, I'm more uh, kind of um, motivated by the value that that brings in order to kind of overcome 
the anxieties that kind of come with, um, you know, putting yourself out there, right? The, the importance or the purpose of the goal or of the calling kind of pulled me from those anxieties and fears, which kept me from sort of expressing, you know, maybe authentically uh, or as authentically as possible. Who, who can really say, oh, I'm being authentic, but it happens on and off, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, for me, it's not like I'm uh, motivated by uh, the result. Like it's interesting if you get a result, like some sort of external reward, oh, that's cool. But for me to even think of the external reward uh, it actually causes too much of um, attention uh, personally for me that keeps me from sort of um, properly engaging in the goal. So um, I know that intellectually, if somebody were to explain to someone, ah, in order for you to perform at your very best, in order for your information to be received uh, completely, you you must be authentic or something like that. Let's say something like that is uh, told to someone. That is great to know sort of intellectually, but for me, when I experience like uh, just trying to communicate something, um, I just cannot even allow myself mm. to think into the future or about the external reward because of the tension that mm, it causes. Mm -hmm. So I just have a different sort of relationship right. with uh, with that stuff. Oh, so, so, so ultimately within that, you know, let's, let's call it pursuit of success or whatever. It's the sort of vulnerability, just like for me, that scares you, right? Sure, but then what kind of takes me out of it is um, is kind of the purpose or the calling yeah. of what it is that we're supposed to be doing or the actual engagement. Hmm. All right, Aaron, all right, you. Yeah, no, I, see, now what's going to happen is I'm influenced by his answer. See, so he, <laughs> either way we go, right? Uh, so look, I, I actually think this question is awesome because it highlights something that's easy to miss, which is it's not that we choose one thing to embrace the risk as opposed to choosing something that's unrisky. Mm -hmm. It's do we recognize that the risk is in play no matter the direction, mm -hmm. right? No matter the choice. So for you, Leon, if you're saying like, man, like writing the book and doing the stuff and kind of, you know, getting in my zone and just flowing into these things, that can absolutely be easy because it feels like there's no risk. But then you said, but then I realized like, oh, crap, this is sort of allowing me to not have to pay attention to the fact that I suck in these other spaces. The existentialist in me wants to say, right, are you okay with continuing to suck at this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so eventually, maybe a, a you know really lowbrow way of saying it is we're all going to suck at something. But are we okay with where we've chosen to prioritize being good and then allowing the suck to happen somewhere else? Mm -hmm. In my life, I cared so much about being such a uh, not, it wasn't the goal wasn't like to be influential as a philosopher or, you know, get to Harvard or something. It was, I didn't want to be a spectator. Like, like that was what motivated me, right? Is, I remember using the analogy when I went to grad school. So I went to Vanderbilt for my PhD and mm -hmm. didn't have funding. Mm -hmm. And so for people who know, going to get a PhD in philosophy without funding is not just risky. It's like boneheadedly stupid. This was, and I don't have lots of money. My parents are both professors. Like this was not a, a good move. 
And yet I remember telling this woman, she was a classics professor who uh, was surprised that I had chosen to come, even though I didn't get the funding. And I said, well, I got funding at a couple other universities, full funding, big packages, like all the things. She's like, well, why wouldn't you take those? And I said, because I was unconvinced those universities would prepare me to actually be a player in the game. Mm -hmm. They would prepare me, I thought, to simply watch the game and encourage other people to watch it too. Mm -hmm. And so I said, it's like, you know, it'd be cool to go see the US Open, right? Go to New York City, watch the US Open. This is amazing. But imagine the difference between thinking you have arrived because you got there and got a ticket as opposed to them handing you the racket and saying, you're up next, mm -hmm. right? That difference is what motivated me. It was never the publish a billion books. It was never get to Harvard or Yale. It was, have I spent my career as a philosopher, my life as a philosopher, being okay just talking about what other people have said? Mm. Or have I, as Walt Whitman suggests, contributed a verse to what people have been saying? Mm -hmm. And that was what motivated me. And notice, right, Leo, like that sounds virtuous. Like that's a great way, to, like that sounds like a faithful way to narrate my career. The problem is that still comes at cost. There's still risk. And in my case, the risk was when I was three or my son was three, we were driving past my university and he leans over to his grandma and says, grandma, grandma, look, that's where daddy lives. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I have, I've messed this up. You'd think I'd change. I'm he's seven, eight, and we're walking down the street holding my hand. And he says, Dad, I don't want to be a philosopher. I was mm -hmm. like, What? We're at the freaking coolest. What do you mean, man? And he said, No, philosophers just don't spend time with their kids. Mm. Like, heartbreak. Surely I change. Nope. It mm. still took the world breaking and the inertia not being possible for me to, like the old fish, point out to myself. Oh, I'm in water. Huh. Right. Yeah. And so that's the thing I wrestle with. Now, when it comes to just practical stuff, uh, I've published, I don't know, 12, 13 books or something. All but this Camping with Kierkegaard are unreadable academic tomes. Like y'all may geek out on them, but believe me, no one else has. <laughs> and so writing this new book for a broad audience, telling about my own stories, about my relation to my wife, about some of the things that I've really messed up in my life and trying to do better now, talking about uh, weekly engagements on YouTube, doing Substack, which is now again, like available to anybody who, you know, reads stuff. All of those moves, it's not harder in the sense that like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm so anxious about being vulnerable. That doesn't affect me. It's hard in the sense of how can I do this and not just give in to what is so easy writing to academics? Like how do I do this and actually take seriously the call of different others who don't read Heidegger, mm -hmm. right? The call of an audience who says, like a 78-year-old guy who was at one of my talks recently, and he came up afterwards and he said, I just want to thank you. He said, I want whatever, like 15 copies of the book or something. I was like, man, that's a lot of copies. Like one's probably enough. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. When I retired, I have spent every day wondering why I should get out of bed mm -hmm. until I heard this talk. Now wow. I realize faithfulness continues to be possible. 
I want a copy for me and all of my grandkids. Right. Yeah. And you're like, man, that doesn't make me feel cocky or huh, he's so lucky he got me. It's humbling in precisely the sense that if I don't continue to try to get out of bed every day and live into the stuff I'm trying to encourage others to take seriously, no matter how many books I've sold, I messed this up. And so that's the call for me these days is, am I actively taking seriously that the normal way I think I should say something or explain something, but, but if I've missed the audience, it just doesn't matter, right? So how can I start seeing what other people are actually expressing without having the words to articulate? Yeah. Yeah. And it's essentially, I would argue, and I mean, I'm sure you would agree that it's glory for glory's sake. There's this famous story of Alexander the Great, where he essentially goes to conquer India. And then Hephaestion, his partner at the time, he says to him, he says, you know, what would you do, Alexander, if you ever reached the end of the world? And he says, well, I would just turn around and conquer it backward. So what, <laughs> I, what that is, as I, although it's cool, it's cool as fuck, right? But what that essentially tells you is that this is all kind of pointless, that he's all just doing this to sustain himself. It's all uh, kind of ego driven. And there's this great line that you had, I remember you said, uh, kind of about the mindset about how if you start thinking of okay if then if then if oh, then you get stuck it. in it go yeah, for yeah. it yeah, it's yeah. actually related to something you said a little yeah. bit earlier yeah if you have the mindset of i'll be happy when i'll be happy when like oh i'll be happy when i get this job i'll be happy when i get this amount of money when i achieve this when i achieve that when that happens and so on you're essentially priming your brain to think i'll only be happy when a certain external uh, event or conditioning like uh, or a, a condition occurs rather so anytime uh, a condition occurs now, because you've trained your brain to only be happy in, in pursuit of something, yeah. you'll never actually attain happiness or uh, be in that, you know, enjoying that uh, rather. Ooh. So being present to the moment, which you, you speak about in the book, in actually engaging uh, with others or with the environment, right. uh, that actually kind of puts you at that place everybody thinks they want to be at through achievement. And it, it, yeah. that, that's where they become, uh, or rather, they they uh, start to be who are they, they who they are becoming by being present to the moment. And I'm yeah, and I want and I really want to add to that because I think for a lot of times going back to Alexander, so people like us, the glory hogs, right? Like we get stuck in that desirability, and uh, so put pretty much fostering or having desire, I think, is the thing for people like that that make them happy. So for somebody like Alexander, I mean, not to get into it too much, not really what the show is about, but like he had a really hard life, right? So he had a terrible relationship with his father, who himself was highly narcissistic. Uh, his mom was super possessive. So really, I mean, and also he lived in fucking Macedonia, you know, fucking in the, the two. <laughs> thousand bc you know right like so be, things that people don't necessarily think of as a high quality life uh or encompassing a high quality life so when you have something like that you have this unquenchable thirst right so i think what alexander is essentially saying when he says i would turn around to cock the world backwards is he essentially saying is the only thing that's making me happy is the desire and the hope for more like essentially it's kind of what you're saying right it's saying not only do we get stuck in it is it that we can't really feel happy otherwise and that we constantly need more and more but i think for those people and i, I mean myself included obviously is that for us it's just that eternal hope that great Gatsby you know it's that thinking like okay when right I'll have this thing in the future but I don't have it now because if I get it now that's too fucking scary what if it doesn't live up to my expectations what if I'm not good enough for it what if I lose it what if what if what if what if and then it's like but if I could just keep conquering right it's always in front of me right and that's exactly uh, right right and and the thing about that is that mindset mindset of wanting more or desiring more or sort of trying to achieve this or that 
ultimately speaking, only when taken to sort of a, a toxic level to the point where somebody is so uh, convinced that that is the only way um, to live, that's that is essentially where that way of thinking becomes a detriment, right? Otherwise, is there a utility to it? Of <laughs> course, right? I mean, there are many things that would not have been be uh, built or achieved, right, without that sort yeah. of mindset, right? right. right? But uh, so many people live that mindset to such an excess that they kind of miss the point of of living, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, so Kierkegaard describes that orientation of more, 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 new, new, new. We'll call it the Alexander complex, right? He describes the Alexander complex as living in the aesthetic mode of existence. And he defines this as someone who needs an external in an immediate sense to define the meaning of their present existence. Mm. And so the problem with this, right, is you always have to keep changing the object of desire in order to think that your immediate moment, your existence actually matters. And so he gives two examples. One, he says, we live kind of like the farmer who's always rotating crops, right? The, the field will only work if I keep rotating what crop I'm planting in it. But man, like, what a weird way to think about your life. Well, what am I going to plant next year? What am I going to plant next year? What am I going to plant? Next year? It, it, at some point, it's like, man, I don't know, like eat the corn. Like that, <laughs> that also sounds good, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> the other example he gives, <laughs> which uh, not not to pick on Leon saying that he struggles with being a good lover, but he says it's the <laughs> he says it's the seducer, right? So the seducer names the aesthetic, the Alexander, because it's all about the seduction of the next lover. And then Kierkegaard says, the moment that the seducer lives for, the aesthetic lives for, what I'm calling the success orientation lives for, is the moment right before the beloved takes a step down the wedding aisle. Mm -hmm. As soon as they take that first step, he's like, oh, now it's effing over. Mm -hmm. Right? Because now I'm, damn it, I'm married. Shoot. How did I let this happen? What else right? is there to chase? Yep. And so the seducer, and he gives the example of uh, Don Juan, has a thousand and three women because it's he names himself, notice, not as the great lover, but as the seducer. Like he has to be the one bringing a new woman to his bed, a new person to his, you know, harem, right? And so if we think about it that way, I will give you an alternative to the Alexander complex, which we can call the Ulysses complex. And this I'm drawing from Alfred Lord Tennyson, who in his famous poem, Ulysses, has this amazing line where he says, I make it my task to sail beyond the sunset. Now, why is that so badass? Because it's impossible, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Alexander makes it his task to conquer the world and you can pull that off. Mm -hmm. But then now what do you do? Well, I guess I'll conquer it the other direction. Like, I guess I can pull that off. It's like, it's the Forrest Gump. You run to the, well, shoot, there's an ocean. I guess I'll go the other way, right? Yeah. Ulysses, according to Tennyson, makes his task to sail beyond the sunset. And then he announces, it's beautiful. He announces, we may get washed down, right? Like, we may not make this. We may 
be lost at sea. But he finishes by claiming, so what then shall we do? And he's, it's interesting, he moves, this is a great business lesson. He, this is the great general, right, talking to his troops effectively. And at the end, he starts calling them friends, right? We now, because they are all old together. The human condition overwhelms any militaristic task, any business outcome. We now age together. And then he says, but old age has a nobility left. And he finishes, of course, famously by saying to strive, to seek, to find, but not to yield. Mm -hmm. Right. Notice he doesn't end with to find. That's the Alexander move to strive, to seek, to find. Boom, and drop the mic, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. To strive to seek to find and not to freaking yield. And I love that because what he's doing is saying the despair of the aesthetic, of the seducer, of the success-driven professional who with a million dollars in the bank jumps off a bridge, right? Mm -hmm. That reality is a despair, says Kierkegaard, of refusing to actually live into yourself. Because notice, you are only defined by that, right? That thing. And in contrast, faithfulness, he says, roots out despair. And the example here is uh, Martin Luther King, who in the this amazing, amazing speech, you know, it's taught right before the end of his life. He says, if I die, don't talk about my Nobel prizes. Don't talk about the successes in, you know, Montgomery and Birmingham. Don't say that I had PhDs. Don't. Now he goes through the list because notice he's not suggesting, so lay on the couch and, you know, refuse to go to work. He's saying, no, go do all kinds of stuff, but realize it's logistics. Mm -hmm. Go publish that book, start the podcast, you know, buy the car. It's logistics, get the degree, whatever. These are important things. You want to go to law school? Well, you got to go to college. Like, But don't think now I have arrived because I got to law school. And so he ends by saying, I want you to tell them. I want you to remind them that I was a drum major for justice, hmm. right? What does that mean? I was somebody who whether or not, and he says this the night before he gets assassinated, he says, whether or not I go with you to the promised land, I'm good. It's okay, <laughs> right? Because it was never about checking that box. It was about living a life that we were okay having lived. And so my example here is always Jay-Z. He's got this great line in one of his tracks where he says, baby, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, it's like, man, are you good? And so I ask my students this almost every class, you good? Mm -hmm. Because even when crap is happening, when the world is you know, going to hell, when it looks like, you know, Trump's going to get reelected. God help us all. Like when these things are happening, but are you good? Even if it's not, mm -hmm. because if you can say yes to that, then notice you're not dependent on external circumstances to define your joy. And wow, like that sounds like something a lot more of us could use wherever we stand politically, wherever we stand religiously, wherever we stand geographically. Let's stand together because the human condition makes all of us, we <laughs> make it our task to sail beyond the sunset. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and it kind of seems like, at least from my understanding of that, is sailing beyond the sunset, is getting in touch and actually trying your best to actualize your actual needs. It's essentially saying that, okay, you have this external world and, you know, going back to what I said before, the successes or whatever to a lot of us, I mean, they do come easily and they don't really, they don't seem to be meaningful in the sense that they don't necessarily fill the void. But then here's the question that I would have for you. So if we're not depending on externals and I'll actually, I'll, I'll personalize this, right? So here you have somebody like me, right? So who has a, a somewhat of a, not even a somewhat of fucking lie so who has a terror of relationships right who would say okay you know what like yeah sure uh the externals like don't necessarily matter but then aren't relationships external and then also if i'm relying on people here okay so here i'll frame it this way right so when it comes to success i'm solely responsible for that so when i write something when i uh, you know we're doing the podcast even though i have you know i'm doing it with alan i mean i still have like my part in it which is honestly i mean i, I don't you know alan does his thing but i focus on my own so with that said right like these are the things that i'm responsible for right these are the things that don't necessarily scare me so when i think about the results for me it's more of like an a to b connection i this is my output this is my input this is my output this is my input right so if we're only depending on ourselves right but then how do we factor in relationships because in some ways we do depend on people and that to me is the fucking scariest thing of all yeah real quick sorry but yeah so a relationship do you really deem that external to yourself yeah you don't think there's an more inter- external than success but there there's i mean if you I mean, if you narrow it down, <clears throat> technically, it, it does seem external, right? Because you're there, you're A, and the person there yep. is B, right? Now, who have I, no control over. I agree. Yeah, when you're really doing that. But if you kind of zoom out, I mean, there, the reason it's called relationship is because it you're, it, there's an interaction that takes place. And when you actually... I mean, if you're talking about a relate, are you if you are you talking about like a, an intimate relationship? Well, so example, uh, let me I'll, I'll throw I'll throw a few things in here. So romantic, definitely, even friendships, man, like deep friendships where the people actually know you and see you. And again, you have to risk going back to faith, right? Talking about direction, you have to actually risk being rejected. So again, remember, success for me is a one to one, man. Literally, output, input, output, input, boom, all in my control. When it comes to relationships, it sure as hell doesn't fucking feel that way. Fair enough. With air <laughs> <ticket>. <laughs> So, so I have a friend who I absolutely love. I'd lay in traffic for this guy. And, uh, and I should say like, I, I'm 46. So it turns out like, uh, you've heard the joke, right? That Jesus must've been God because he had 12 good guy friends in his thirties. No, I so, <laughs> That's so it's like only God could pull that off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't have a lot of close friends, right? But this guy is a close friend. And he's single. And one of the things that is so interesting uh, about him, we mountain bike together and stuff. And one thing that's interesting is he is so interested in finding the relationship, right? Because he so desperately wants not to be alone, to have that intimacy, to be, you know, like the maximal friendship with another who's like united in life. And I want all that for him. But here's the the wrinkle with it that I keep trying to kind of invite him to think about mm-hmm. is, look, man, if you desperately need that because you think that's what will make you happy, if only I find the relationship, then I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Dude, you're effing screwed. And also you are absolutely like making that person's future miserable, mm-hmm. Right. Imagine instead the idea of saying, baby, I'm good. Like, I don't need this relationship to, you know, Jerry Maguire complete me. 
I choose to be invested in this risky, difficult, unpredictable thing, cold relationship, whether it be friendship or romantic, because that's at the core of what it is to be me. I am relational. This is part of just what it looks like to live out the self I am. Mm -hmm. And here I'm appealing to the work of Emmanuel Levinas, a Lithuanian Jewish French philosopher who said that at our most basic, to be is to be responsible to the face of the other person. And so that can be agonizing and heavy and, oh my goodness, I'll never discharge this guilt I have because I've failed so many people. But what Levinas is actually inviting us to see is not that kind of point. He's trying to say, get rid of the illusion of a kind of libertarian sense of self. You were never the person, Leon, who's just A, output B, input A, output B. It turns out that A and B are only an economic relationship because you're depending on all kinds of other people who have made possible the A-B relation, right? Mm -hmm. And so this can be even developmental psychology point. The fact that we are talking to each other and didn't die at like seven months old is because somebody fed us, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like the fact is we are relational. And so if we lean and rest into that relationality as part of what defines the human condition, we stop thinking of relationships as consumable goods. You've probably seen Fight Club where mm -hmm. they talk about, you know, the single serving friends. The problem is, even if we've got that relationship for a decade, if it was the thing that makes me happy, like in this consumable good way, they're a single serving friend, no matter how long the friendship lasted. And in the book, I have a whole chapter where I talk about being known. So I love the way you put this, Leo, when you said it, like, it's being known that kind of terrifies me. And what I say in the book is, think about the Cheers theme song, Right. Don't you want to go to the place where everybody knows your name? Mm -hmm, yeah. And we all, I think, desperately want that. But notice we can buy that. Just become an influencer. Now everybody knows your name, right? But it misses everything that matters about relationships. And so I also talk about the scene in Tombstone where Doc Holliday is dying and Wyatt Earp comes in and they're talking to each other. And Doc is presented this book that Wyatt's written, and it just it says, Doc Holliday, my friend. <laughs> and why that matters so much is because earlier in the film, Doc is talking to one of the other Earp gang, and he says, Doc, why are you here? You're dying. You're sick. Like, why would you do this? And he says, because Wyatt's my friend. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, hell, Doc, I got lots of friends. To which Doc simply responds, I don't, <laughs> right? Like the idea that Doc knows who he is, is Wyatt's friend, mm -hmm. right? It's not a transaction. It's not an economic exchange. There is no relation here that allows you to pay back the friendship. It's what lets you rest into yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to advocate for when I talk about relationality. In a world that's made relationships transactions, I actively want to invite us to say, look, the fact that y'all talk to each other and think with each other and probably disagree with each other and get pissed at each other. And yet notice 
Alan, you are you in some deep sense because Leon isn't, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he's not you, which allows you to lean into yourself. And Leon, you get to say, I'll be the asshole who's bad at whatever, because Alan's like, man, that's not the only option. Like that relationship is uh -huh. beautiful. And this is why I think it's so hard the farther we age, because real friends have to be people who ultimately, says Aristotle, don't need anything from us. They are simply made better, made themselves because we love virtue too, <laughs> right? Like, because I love virtue, I'm actually helping you be virtuous, but you're not my friend so you can be more virtuous. You're my friend because you are virtuous and love virtue. Like our individual loves throw us into relationship. So that we're not now seeing it just as what he calls a use friendship. We're not friends of use. We're friends of virtue. Right. So I don't so, know if that helps, Leon, it, well, but that, well, I, that'd, be, that'd be my hunch, right? I have to say just very quickly, that might have been one of the top 10 things ever said <laughs> on true. this podcast, by yeah. the way. I'm not kidding. If somebody really takes a second to really process what you just said, that essentially you are a relationship. It's not like this transactional thing i can't even articulate it as well as you just articulated it but i felt something while listening to you and i'm like if this is really understood this is a very earth shattering kind of a you don't think so no i do i do i will yeah i mean but it's just because it's you know it's our podcast we're but like think about no i, I saw, okay, please listen to a clip later yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we have to make a clip yeah, no no but no it's not the clip no what i'm saying is just because it's, like, it's our little podcast you know it's like you know yeah, that's right. But let me let me just add to that. Let me just so Aaron, what I hear you saying is just in terms of uh, security and relationships. What the way I understand it, and uh, the way it sort of pops up in my mind is that when you are you know quote unquote relational, and then the other person is relational, there's really nothing to necessarily be afraid of. So when you are afraid of relationships, it's more like you're afraid of the I guess a status driven relationship where there's the person who will leave you because you don't have the car anymore, or the job, or whatever it is because you've lost your place in society. So ultimately, here's what. I'm hearing again is that the value system here, if it were shifted into to some extent, I would say probably 180. So if it were shifted to some extent, and there was a part of you that understood that if the other person on the other side of you is as relational and as considered or as you are, so there's not really a need to sort of grasp for them, right? There's not really a need to say like, oh my God, are you going to leave me tomorrow? No, no, that's actually the success driven mindset because the person that you're with in that respect is actually just going to be another trophy of yours. Also, you don't need to depend on them being relational. Like the way you just framed that mm. it sounds like you're you there's almost like you have to take into consideration that they may be as relational mm -hmm. as you you it seems like you don't even have to and you're you're sort of just by ultimately by being yourself i'm not articulating this as well as i would like mm -hmm. but by um essentially being relational rather yeah. you are the the whole concept of how you treat the relationship is different. Like you're not looking for anything from them. Right, right. Essentially. So But I think that, both things could be true though. But oh yeah, of course. Both mm -hmm. things can be true. It's just that that's my understanding yeah, 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 of what's yeah. happening here. But, yeah. by but viewing I, but, yourself as relational. But what I, you, you it's like a different paradigm yeah. of how to how you're encountering that person. There's yeah. no longer this even necessarily uh wondering about what their intentions are. It's almost as if you're acting first as like just being authentic and then through there's like 
it's almost like, uh, yeah, you're acting based on faith. It's almost as if, well, mm, can I add to that? Sure. So here's why I don't think it's necessarily faith. I actually would argue, and I mean, Aaron, you could disagree with me. I actually think it's bi-directional from what I hear everybody say, is that essentially if you're the relational person, what you're going to attract is the same type of person to you. So yes, you might not be codependent on them, but I mean, we all are, I would say it's more of what's called an interdependence where we, because we all need people. I mean, you're still, still going to, to some extent, depend on them. But I think there's a sense of security and knowing, A, first of all, if this person is more stable, Status driven and you know they leave me because I don't have you know whatever the position that I had before was then that's fine I could deal with it because again this is my mindset but ultimately what I'm going to attract and I know I'm going to attract is the same type of person that I'm essentially being so I know Aaron what do you think yeah so I, it, it's it's fascinating so I agree in part with what you're both saying and yet I think you are disagreeing with each other <laughs> so, so it's, it's, it's one of these, you know, a, a, fr a friend of uh, your enemy is my enemy or something. So, so here's what I like about Alan, what you're saying. It absolutely, I agree entirely with you. When we understand this kind of Levinasian sense of we are relational. And so in the book, I suggest that we are vulnerable. We are relational. That's the human condition. And that then requires of us to recognize that risk with direction is always happening. The question is, will we then take that up as a task or will we cover over it accomplishing, right? True. And when we do that, it's going to then motivate us to develop certain virtues, which I name as humility, hospitality, and gratitude as the ways that this faithful life will live out. Now, why I kind of go through that general arc of the book is because you're right, I think, Alan, that it can't be some sort of, well, I'm surveying the populace for the right sorts of people, right? Because then it does just become kind of like the shopping mall model of relationships. Ooh, there's a really smart relational person. I'll give them the time of day, right? right so right. I'm with you entirely. That would reduce all of this back to the problematic idea that I want to reject. And by the way, faithfulness can become a bastardized, deficient mode of success-driven life. I'm going to be effing faithfuler than anybody else. I'm going to be more faithful than you, right? Suck it. So if, if we see relations that way, I'm out. If we see instead that relationality is who I am, regardless of with whom I am now in relation. Like this defines me and this is what makes it so important to choose wisely about the people with whom I am in deep relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And the way I put this in the book is hiking matters to me, but what matters more than hiking is with whom I choose to hike, mm -hmm. right? Like who am I gonna be on trail with? And sometimes I'll be by myself. But again, when I'm by myself on trail, I'm becoming better at then going back into the office and being with others, right? Now, what I agree with you on, Leon, is it is super uh, important to realize that not all relationships are going to um, live at this kind of highest level of human potential, right? So for what it's worth, like, I hope we get to hang out and actually go mountain biking together and grab a cider at one of the cideries, you know, Mills River, North Carolina. 
But for now, I'm also kind of needing you guys to have your audience buy copies of my book, subscribe to my Substack. Maybe this will allow it to snowball so I can make enough money at the book that I don't have to teach that extra summer class. Like we are right now also in a relationship of use. Right. You guys need content. Maybe, maybe he's not boring. I don't know. Let's stick him on the pot. Like, so I'm wanting to say that's not vicious, right? That's fine. Of course. That's yeah. logistics. Mm -hmm. So when we realize there are all kinds of relationships in our life, but the relationships in my life are not dictating the self that I am. I'm actively choosing to be the sort of person who is wise about relations, who is saying, is dating this person worthy of my finitude, right? But if we just say, you know what? This stuff scares me. F it. Like, I'll, I'll just date whoever because you know what? That's not going to define me. What we've actually done is refused to lean into the relationality that actually names us as social beings, so the way I like to put it is we are already communitarian, <laughs> right? And so the question is, are we okay with our community? And what I name in the book, like the villain of the piece, my, my foil, the thing that I'm trying to oppose, I call the asshole. And I'm drawing this from my buddy, Aaron James, who if you have not had on the podcast, you've got to get him on, wrote this amazing book, Assholes, A Theory. Oh, wow. And what he says... The, the asshole is simply the person who systematically claims entitlement in ways that diminish others and then immunize us from critique, mm -hmm. right? So notice, Leon, I mean, I'm not psychoanalyzing you, man. I'm Please. suggesting this, this person that you've created that you've called yourself, right? <laughs> this narrative you're deploying for the podcast allows us to say, wait a minute, if I let relationships become transactional full stop, I'm becoming an asshole because I'm actually not letting these people be equal to me in their ability to say, like, there's more to life. This could be differently, right? And so my issue is not with rich people or powerful people or influencing people educated people. Like I want everybody to do well what they choose to do. My issue is people who then think because success comes easily, like I'm just better, right? Because I've got the PhD, you're going to freaking call me doctor, damn it. Like the, <laughs> the people who need the power, need the position. And what Socrates models through the, the mind of Plato is we want people to lead our community who actively don't want to lead it. Mm -hmm. They want to be at the pub having the cider, hitting the trails, living in relation. Problem is we've got to have some people who can make sure that we're not blowing ourselves up. And the problem is if we don't find leaders who are humble enough, as Kendrick Lamar says, sit down, be humble, right? Like, <laughs> listen to more Kendrick Lamar, you'll be better as a person. That humility invites us actively to be okay with the idea that I don't have to lead to be important, mm -hmm. right? And that's where, for me, the book is not trying to tell people how to direct their lives, 
I'm not telling people how to be faithful because that makes it an algorithm. That makes it a success model. That makes it a six-step motivational talk. What I'm doing is trying to say, hey, here's the truth about the life I've tried to live. Here's some stuff I've struggled with. Here's what I'm hoping to make true. And here's why I think the history of philosophy and time spent in the mountains helps me lean into that. Maybe this speaks to other people, whether they would rather be at the beach, <laughs> they'd rather be at the metal show instead of the hip hop show, whether they actually find a kind of success to be something that genuinely brings them a kind of joy. Awesome. Live into it. Do it on purpose. Understand it. Don't be an asshole. Right. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, that's the hope of the book. And what I'm suggesting is existential philosophy, especially Kierkegaard, are unbelievable resources, not just to help us sound smart at cocktail parties, but to help us daily get out of bed and not want to kill ourselves, to get out of bed and invite other people to be okay with themselves and to get out of bed and say, Am I today doing what I think matters, even if it's something I wish I didn't have to do? You know what? This is something that's getting me where I'm hoping to go, and that's okay, but I don't need to get there to feel like my life was significant. Okay. That's what I'm up to and trying to do for folks. So I, I love it, man. Wow, and such a great endpoint. All right, Alan, final questions for Aaron before we wrap up. Uh, yes, uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Yeah. So for anybody who wants to buy the book, Camping with Kierkegaard, it's available on Amazon. Uh, if you are morally opposed to Amazon, you can also get it at bookshop.org. Uh, it is available there. Um, you can order it also at any bookstore. Uh, they probably won't carry it. And the reason is because it turns out um, bringing philosophy to the masses is not something that a lot of really big presses think is a good idea because their success model <laughs> doesn't see the business strategy as being lucrative. So I published this with a friend of mine who owns a boutique press, somebody you've had on as a guest, Tom Morris. Mm -hmm. And so this was published in Tom Morris's boutique, Let's Do Philosophy and Change the World Press called mm -hmm. Wisdom Work. So it's available everywhere, uh, Amazon bookshop or bookstores. You just have to order it from the bookstore. And then if they want to connect with me more broadly or more regularly, uh, my Substack is really the kind of landing pad for that philosophy in the wild. I do weekly posts, sometimes more than one a week. Uh, there's stuff, you know, I do music Mondays where I reflect on contemporary music, which of course contemporary usually for me is like 1990s stuff. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm being told by my students that like I'm all dad Rocky now, which kind of makes me sad. Um, but I also do a monthly newsletter there for free. Um, and then a lot of stuff that's behind some paywalls to help people, you know, basically help me continue to do this in ways that are sustainable. And then also they can go to my YouTube channel, Philosophy Before We Find Ourselves. I do weekly about five to 10 minute uh, philosophy videos, and then a monthly 30 to 45 minute longer technical sort of thing for people who really want to geek out. All of that, though, you can forget it. Go to jarensimmons.com and it'll take you to all those other places. It's kind of the hub of this particular <laughs> wheel. 
Awesome. awesome. Aaron, man, thank you so much, dude. This was such an exceptional episode. Super fun. Like, honestly, it's, I think you're, it's in my top 10. Yeah. I'm not kidding. And that clip, dude. that one thing that I want to clip out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I have to like re-listen to that. Later, but <laughs> I was going to have that as this daily motivational speech. Honestly, uh, I freaking love it. Maybe. Well, Hey, you, if you guys get near, uh, the North Carolina, South Carolina mountains, you guys let me know. I, I will bring the bikes and, uh, buy the beer and we will have an absolute ball together. So thank you guys so much for having Sounds me. Cool. Oh man. Absolutely. Thank man. You. Awesome. All right. We'll talk Take to you care. soon. All right. So that was awesome. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, YouTube. on YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.